Join us for Diffusion Digital at Diffusion.events, our two-day virtual conference from the 15th to the 16th of September, showcasing leading projects from across Web3 with fireside and panels featuring leaders like Joe Lubin of Ethereum and others from projects including Set Protocol, The Graph, Apple Labs, Parity, R3, Gollum and eToro. Today, I'm really happy to welcome founder and CEO of SuperRare, John Crane. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks for having me, Jamie. Appreciate being on. I would describe SuperRare as an NFT marketplace for digital art and not just for artists, but also collectors. And it kind of serves as both a primary and secondary market. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I think the only thing I'd add is uh, we maybe also focus on there's one part social network. So we have a lot of social features that maybe uh, a more utilitarian marketplace might not have. So the great thing uh, about perhaps um, might be inherent to crypto art generally, NFTs, is there's lots of data available, but you're also very open about what happens in the marketplace. So last time I looked, there are over 13,000 unique assets created, minted and listed on SuperRare. Artists have earned over 1.6 million and uh, collectors have earned over $500,000. So this is, in the context of crypto, still relatively small, but there are kind of noticeable increases both in terms of the volume and evaluations in the market generally, but I think specific to SuperRare. So um, I, when I look into the marketplace, they go for anything from um, an equivalent of $250 all the way into the thousands. What's the, what's the highest transaction that's happened so far? The highest transaction was 16,000. It was paid for a, uh, I believe it was a looping video. Interesting. Was that primary or secondary? Uh, it's in the primary. Okay. Actually. Yeah. So it was about a month ago. So, I mean, I've been in crypto for just over seven years and I remember whenever blockchains were mentioned in the context of art, it was usually around the provenance of physical art. That kind of conversation uh, seemed to moved on significantly now into uh, it being in the context of digital art and NFTs. And as I've got increasingly interested, or back, gone back into the space, both as an investor into startups that are working on NFT at either application layer or infrastructure layer, um, but also personally as a, a collector, it, it seems that the market now is kind of leagues apart in terms of both the kind of volume and quality of, of artists. Um, and it's actually Jake Brookman of CoinFund. Uh, I did a podcast a few weeks ago who, who got me to kind of look back into it. He's obviously a, both an artist and an avid collector, but also an investor in the space too. Um, and what I can understand, you're one of the top platforms and you're showing some really uh, great growth stats. So you recently showed that your sales for August 2020 were $624,000. Uh, that was up from 246,000 in July. So it feels like something big is happening on the platform. So congratulations for that momentum. But as I've been kind of looking at the space and, and trying to form a thesis, it, it kind of feels like crypto art, especially in the context of a bull run in the wider market, could kind of be the Lambo of you know, this aspiring new crypto wealth, which always felt slightly at odds with, you know, this very technical geekish community, whilst 
NFTs with kind of crypto art definitely feels um, more up that street. And so it, it feels obvious that as more crypto wealth is generated, it's going to move into um, crypto art that is kind of self-referential to, to the space. Um, but it's going to be interesting to get your view on whether NFTs are going to kind of break out from, from that niche into mainstream and into wider digital art. And when I've spoken to other people in the space, um, some have referenced there's already this kind of consolidation happening in terms of almost blue chip artists, perhaps um, some of the earliest movers in the crypto art space. But it seems to be extending beyond creators in both the Ethereum and Bitcoin community and into digital artists that are working either with AI, generative art, also gaming engines and, and film, which is which is really exciting. And also this convergence with VR, AR um, and gaming, which you might call metaverse. And I know you've been doing some really interesting things in VR. So we're going to touch upon that a little bit later. So to just quickly uh, contextualize you as a founder, I'll do my best to, to summarize your origins. Please feel free to, to chip in. From an education perspective, you went to San Diego State University and you actually studied compu uh, computational science. It says you completed your first semester. So hopefully that means you, you dropped out. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was actually a, a master's program, which I did drop out of. Uh, okay. I completed an undergrad uh, in San Francisco, actually studying uh, civil engineering and architecture. Ah, interesting. Okay, I miss I missed that one, um, and perhaps that then feeds into uh, the first role where you describe yourself as a creative technologist, working at something called MRY, um, which was working in web and mobile development, um, and uh, it looked like there was a spin out called MRY Coffee App. Was that your kind of first first startup? That yeah, so that was kind of like an internal uh, project that they built. It was. Uh... Yeah, basically, you know, it was kind of like early days for mobile apps and some of this like these like Bluetooth, uh, I forget exactly what they were called, but like you could like schedule it like as soon as you walked in the door, it would like order a coffee for you. So yeah, I think that's probably the first from ideation to like actual product people use that I worked on. Got you. Um, and then uh, you worked at General Assembly where you were a front-end web development instructor from about 2014 um, onwards, where you were helping you kind of develop the technical curriculum, led students through front-end front um, web development courses. Um, and presumably that gave you some good grounding in terms of working with and on, onboarding developers. And I don't know how much that's true in what you do with uh, Super Rare in terms of developing a, a developer ecosystem uh, around that platform. You then moved to Consensus, uh, where you're a product engineer. You're also involved with the Accelerator there. Um, and around 2015, uh, you were a founding member of um, Block Apps, which was working primarily in an enterprise context, um, founded the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance uh, and, and many other partners there, like Azure, AWS, Red Hat, et cetera. Um, 2017, you then founded SuperRare, and you've been doing that for almost three years. So congratulations. You survived. <laughs> um, so, so what was the, in, in that journey, I mean, I guess consensus was the place where you kind of really developed this understanding or appreciation for the space. Um, what led you to found SuperRare? What was it about the space? especially at that point, because 
Um, it was non-obvious, I think, it would be as hot as it is becoming now. Um, why was that the problem or the opportunity or the mission that you kind of settled on to, to focus your career? Yeah, it was sort of two parallel tracks. I think, you know, I got lucky, ended up just kind of like following my two separate passions that, you know, ultimately converged in super rare. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I had studied engineering and architecture for my undergrad. So I kind of always was interested in art and, you know, creative expression, building things. Um, but, uh, at the same time, while I was doing my undergrad, I was in an econ class during the fall of 2008. And so I had no interest in finance or anything, but that kind of, you know, spurred some interest. And so I started reading about things like Austrian economics and kind of like going down a rabbit hole uh, that ultimately ended up uh, at Bitcoin. So I was kind of interested in the arts, also interested in, you know, crypto. Uh, both of them were kind of like, you know, hobbies, you know, passion projects, things I'd work on on the weekends. I was working in advertising. And then eventually, I kind of seeing what was happening with Bitcoin in New York, heard some rumors about Ethereum, was a little bit skeptical at first, but, um, you know, the, the network launched, I started playing around and got really excited about possibilities. So, you know, went to work with consensus, but at the same time, you know, I was kind of how I got interested in art really was uh, through generative art. So when I was in college, sort of playing around with things like processing, you know, I loved, I was always a little bit of a math nerd. So I loved the idea that you could like use random numbers to, you know, generate, you know, visually aesthetic uh, and you know, pleasing things to look at. So yeah, those eventually, you know, I was working with consensus, kind of saw some of these, you know, had seen what happened with rare Pepe's. Uh, which, you know, could be like early tokenized digital art, uh, the CryptoPunks guys, you know, pioneered kind of the early NFT standard. And then, you know, seeing what had happened with CryptoKitties, you know, and like building the actual standard for NFTs, I got really excited about that, having seen how the standard for ERC-20 tokens affected, you know, kind of like this ICO boom. I thought that having a standard for, you know, unique digital objects was going to be game changing, right? Like everything on the consumer web has a unique ID. And that was kind of the, you know, NFTs facilitate that in an on-chain manner. And so I got really excited and was just wanted to build, you know, get involved, build something. And so at some point, you know, I was just talking uh, with my brother, who's our CTO. And we were like, oh man, what if you, you know, built something like a social network, but you had, instead of just like Instagram posts or tweets or whatever you have it, you know, what if each thing, each artifact was a piece of art? Um, and so that, uh, it's kind of the two, the colliding passions in crypto and, and art. So uh, that's interesting. So you, did you co-found the company with your brother or did you kind of, did you hire him in later? Uh, so yeah, I started working on it. Um, but he, he had more experience. So he actually worked at block apps as well. And he was a low level, he was working on, you know, they had a custom Ethereum node kind of like with extra features for big enterprises. And so he had a lot of low level experience. I'd often asked him, you know, I was asking him questions about solidity. How does this work? Um, and so he was kind of advising me, I'd say, and then eventually he decided to uh, to join full time. But yeah, uh, there's three co-founders. It's myself, uh, my brother, and then actually 
uh, Jonathan Perkins, who's uh, my cousin. So. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're really keeping it in the family. And, and how, how does that work? I mean, I'm sure it has its pros and its cons, right? I mean, I guess you can go outside and have a physical bust up and go back into the office and that's perfectly acceptable. Yeah, exactly. It makes the... It makes the you know, the conflict pretty easy because we, we've been doing it for decades. So, <laughs> yeah, is it younger brother, or older brother? He is my younger brother. Okay, interesting. My assumption was again looking at your background and at first glance, or at least my exposure to to the space has been that crypto art seemed to be primarily coming out of the Ethereum community. At the same time, you know, you do see a lot of work referencing Bitcoin. Do you think that the, from a community perspective, is is that polarized or is that actually um, when it when it comes to crypto art, the the kind of put down the arms, it's less tribal between those two communities. Yeah, I think with regard to art, it's a little bit less tribal. You know, people still love to you know joke and poke at the other projects, but. I think people are just, they're often excited to see other people who see the vision for, you know, how, how powerful on-chain art can be. And so, you know, there's people who, you know, Counterparty was a pioneer. So a lot of folks who had done experiments with Counterparty, that was kind of my first, you know, foray into the space and understanding about it is like Counterparty assets. Um, and so, you know, they're a little bit tribal, but I'd say overall less tribal. They're kind of just excited uh, yeah, that it's happening and growing. I think that's uh, pretty exciting for everybody. Yeah, and I guess in a, a bull run, um, there's even less reason to be uh, tribal, right? So one of the things that I've been trying to wrap my head around is when you look at um, super rare in the context of the kind of wider NFT digital art ecosystem, what is the function of super rare? And if you kind of look at that ecosystem of participants what's the same and what's different to the traditional art market or you know the traditional digital art market yeah so i'd say that you the function of super rare has kind of continued to evolve as the space has evolved so when we first launched we launched a, a minting tool and then also a marketplace tool so you had primary and secondary marketplace capabilities and the minting tool i think we were one of the first places where you could mint an NFT. So we launched that April 2018. And, you know, since then, I think we've kind of gotten more, you know, our opinion, you know, looking forward, there's going to be, you know, millions and millions of pieces of tokenized art. And we've ended up becoming more uh, curated. So I think, uh, you know, now there's tons of options for places you can go mint. And so, one of the things we're doing is trying to be an interface for uh, people with, from more traditional art backgrounds. So we recently launched an editorial, uh, which is kind of open to, you know, there's opinion pieces, there's artist studio tours, you know, write-ups on the exhibition work that we're doing. And so, yeah, I think a big part of what we're doing is kind of showing uh, showing the world that, you know, hey, this isn't just Bitcoin memes and, you know, pictures of Italic. Like there's, <laughs> you know, tons of incredible artists who, you know, are really serious about their craft. And, you know, we're kind of helping them find collectors and, uh, you know, monetize this art that, you know, people haven't really thought about 
digital fine art so much. You know, it is, there is a market for it, but it's pretty small. And I think NFTs can really unlock a much larger audience uh, just due to the nature of you know, how they work. And so as I understand it, this kind of curation isn't necessarily uh, from you centrally as, as an editor, but it's through collectors. So you have the artists and then you have the collectors and people can follow the collectors or, or an artist. Um, how does that kind of function in reality? From what I could see, a lot of the collectors are also artists. Um, I don't know like what percentage, but it certainly feels like um, you've kind of got a fairly self-contained uh, community initially, at least the most active users. But could you kind of talk through what is a typical super rare artist or, or collector? And is is the what's the difference between a collector and somebody that's perhaps um, making a one-off transaction? Sure. So yeah, with artists, basically right now we kind of have rolling applications. So artists can apply. Uh, we actually do have it. So we have an in-house kind of curation team that helps uh, with the, the application process. Um, so it's, you know, a big part of it is like vetting, just making sure that people are who they say they are. Uh, you know, they're not just ripping stuff off of Google and, or Instagram and, you know, trying to create a digital forgery. Um, and then, so there, that's one component. Uh, these people, you know, often do, do collect art. Uh, but there's also a pretty wide, you know, a big pool of, I'd say, NFT enthusiasts who are not artists, who are just interested in sort of, you know, what NFTs stand for when we think about, you know, like the metaverse or like what is, you know, digital property. Um, and so I think those are kind of the two big categories of, you know, right now the big collectors are people who are generally really excited about NFTs and think, um, you know, there's something really special happening there. So that uh, the forgery bit's interesting. So I remember the first time I heard art and blockchain mentioned together was by Trent McConaughey of Now Ocean. He worked on something called Ascribe, um, which was trying to tackle that problem. Is it still a manual process? Do you leverage something like Ascribe? Do you think that there's a, a gap? That problem's still not been solved. So. I think that problem has still not been solved and kind of the way we've approached it is just to every relationship that we have with an artist, we, you know, we're, it's a partnership. So, you know, we're kind of methodically and slowly onboarding new artists and really view it as a long-term relationship. Um, you know, it's not, and that was kind of a decision we made early on. It was like, well, we could build something completely open, but then you need to spend a lot of resources building, you know, spam prevention tools and things like that. Or, you know, we could have a more manual process and kind of focus on like building an ecosystem around digital art. And then, you know, potentially later, if you do want to open it up more, you have nice infrastructure to rest on versus, you know, just worrying about, oh, this is just, you know, stuff that's being tokenized from Google. Um, so I think there's still some, some opportunity to improve, you know, those types of tools. Uh, but what's interesting as well with art is, you know, in crypto, people love to talk about reputation systems and, you know, art, is, a lot of art is kind of reputation and personal interaction. So even though they're not codified and things like smart contracts, they're still very strong and it would, you're pretty disincentivized if to, you know, create a forgery because if it gets discovered, and especially in this case, you know, we have a, 
a very clear record that you did indeed, you know, tokenize something that wasn't yours two years ago in this specific block, uh, that would be pretty bad for your reputation. And so it is, you know, it, it's interesting. I think, you know, people love, want it to, the reputation system to be permissionless, but uh, it's actually a great reputation system just in the social layer itself that kind of helps uh, disincentivize that type of behavior. Yeah, so it's interesting. So, so one of the things that uh, I asked you before we did the interview, whether you're comfortable talking about was a couple of things. Firstly, the perceived uh, toxicity in, in, in the community. Um, and then what you described as kind of this growing pain of an evolving, growing community um, where recently there was a problem between a collector and an artist. And it's interesting when you talk about building the community around Super Rare, that you're not trying to just devolve as much of this to code as possible, that there is this kind of social layer. Uh, recently, there was this this challenge between a, a collector and an artist. Could you kind of talk through what happened and how the community responded and, and ultimately um, how you as a platform, I guess, uh, intervened? Sure. And yeah, so... You know, one thing that we've been working on and probably, you know, would have helped us greatly in this situation had we, you know, finished it earlier is, you know, community guidelines. I think it's important to have, you know, a healthy shared understanding of, you know, where are we and where are we going? You know, where, where do we want to go with this thing? And so I think that was, you know, on our part, having those guidelines out would have, you know, been pretty helpful. Um, in this case, you know, there was some, uh, you know, pretty trolly behavior happening. And so, uh, you know, one of the collectors had, you know, basically asked us to, you know, remove an artist who is, you know, participating in this. And we basically asked for it. We were like, well, we're trying to get these guidelines out. You know, it's, you know, we certainly don't kind of like support trolly behavior. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to just go, oh, like, oh, here, we'll just turn your account off. Right. There's, you know, like we're all building trust with one another, trying to build something special. And so, yeah, I think it was just, you know, grow, you people growing and changing, the communities evolving. And so inevitably, inevitably, there's going to be conflict and you need a way to, you know, resolve it in a, in a healthy manner. And so I think we're still, you know, it's a reasonably young project. And so we're kind of building that infrastructure to help deal with uh, these types of situations. Uh, you know, in crypto, there can be some pretty toxic, uh, you know, negative attitudes. And, you know, I think it, you know, it's the same here, right? You have uh, lots of personalities on, you know, extreme ends of spectrum sometimes, you know, like, and so it can just be challenging to deal with. And so we kind of, tried to, you know, we did our best, tried to be reasonable and fair and, you know, can't please everybody. But, uh, you know, I think ultimately these types of things are actually super healthy, right? You need to, you need to have thick skin, be able to deal with stuff like this. And for me, it's just like, I know what I'm doing, right? Like I'm trying to build a platform that's going to like have an amazing future for art collecting, right? I think we're changing the way people interact with art and perceive art and, I'm excited about that. So my goal is to build these tools that can, you know, they can help people. I think we are, you know, we've helped a bunch of artists around the world make money with art that they probably wouldn't have done before. And so, 
you know, I just try to, as distracting as it can be and stressful, just trying to stay focused on, you know, what my mission is and goal is and kind of try to ignore the noise as much as possible. Yeah. So, I mean, um, so the outcome in the end, I believe, was that you removed the collector rather than the artist. Well, the, the collector quit and then in that process kind of like unearthed other sort of opinions and feelings and um you know sort of like the very trolley behavior continued and so we ended up the art that artist in particular was uh was removed um just it seemed like uh so it's sort of you know lost on both sides in some regards but um uh I think, you know, ultimately it's net positive. Like it was, there was a lot of trolley behavior. We're trying to build some, you know, a positive, you know, place for people to respect each other. And, uh, you know, what we're doing is hard enough. So if you're, if you're not interested in supporting our efforts, then it's probably not a good place for you. And I guess this comes back to the idea that you alluded to at the beginning, which is one of your USPs is that you're also trying to have a social layer, a social network around these assets. And so that, I guess, requires moderation um, and is a good argument for why you want a degree of censorship. I know like generally in crypto, censorship is seen as this abhorrent thing. But as you can see from the different types of social media in the place, there's like a you know, 4chan. You, do you want super rare to become like 4chan or, 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 or something else, right? There's lots of, and I think, you know, it's like when I, we first launched, we were one of the only, you know, minting platforms out there. And there's plenty of other options. So if you know if people don't like, you know, how the community is shaping up, and you know, they, they they can go somewhere else. You know, it's I, it's uh, there's plenty of other things to do. So yeah, well, I guess it's a free market, and also, as you say, other platforms may cater to this kind of censorship resistance or the ability to uh, not have deplatforming. At the same time, I think we all know from our own personal experiences with with social media. Um, having a degree of curation and moderation um, generally creates a, a, a more f- friendly environment. Um, so if you kind of look at the, again, when I speak to people in the space and I ask them at least aspirationally what they think will be different about this as a market compared to the conventional art space, they might talk about um there is less of an opportunity to manipulate the market. You can potentially remove opacity in terms of who's buying and selling what art pieces. And then also this idea that you can remove galleries from the equation, or at least the kind of tax, quote unquote, of a gallery, which I believe can be up to 50% in the conventional art market. So what what's your perspective on that? Where do you think, what do you think realistically will be different what might turn out to be the same? Is it okay that there is just a, a new form of gallery that inserts itself into the space? And is is the platform potentially the gallery? Yeah. So let's see. I think there's a couple of questions, but I'll start with, you know, what, one of the things I think that's different in this market, and I think it's related to the opacity you mentioned uh, in art. And I think a lot of people don't know that there's, it's very difficult to get good data. You have to pay for an expensive uh, pricing database subscription just to, you know, if you wanted to see, you know, what's the average price of art by a specific artist or something like that. Um, and one of the beautiful things about NFTs is 
we're creating a free open data set. And, you know, there's going to be some level of noise and spam in the data, but you're free to analyze the data and kind of filter out what you deem irrelevant. And, you know, this is important information. Um, so I think that's real one time, thing. Right? As well. Yeah, happening in real time. And I think that's, you know, it's not very like exciting and sexy, like talking about having good, clean data, but it's actually super important, I think, for healthy markets. And so I think that's one thing people don't often think about when thinking about this. And I think a result of having that data is that you're going to have more participants in the market. Um, I think art and art collecting is, you know, it's a very fun social activity. Collecting is, you know, very human. And I think the way the current contemporary art market's structured, it kind of keeps a lot of folks out of it. So there's plenty of people who would be interested in joining, but there's a high enough level of friction that they decide it's not for them. And I think that actually there's a much greater number of people who would enjoy art collecting and who are already starting to collect art. We've seen it on our platform, people who have said, you know, like I was always kind of interested in art collecting, you know, um, but I just, I, I didn't see a good place to get started. I didn't want to go to a gallery, you know, like they often, you know, not all galleries are the same, but sometimes they can be like, you know, it's like a little bit like, who are you? Um, you know, you have you, do you know anything about art? Did you study art history? And so I think kind of lowering those barriers, which is exciting because you have more people around the world getting excited about and involved in art. So galleries, I think, yeah, 50% is you know, obviously an extremely high fee. Uh, do I think the galleries are going to go away? I think there's something, a really interesting component of art kind of is the storytelling. And I don't know that everybody wants to, some people, I think, you know, it's a whole spectrum of like art creation, then there's art storytelling, there's art appreciation of the storytelling. So it's this sort of intricate web of social interactions. And so it's, you know, I don't think galleries and curators are like banks where they're just like charging overdraft fees. Uh, you know, they're exhibiting the work. So making people think about it differently is so they do add value to the situation. They're not just this tax collector on the road. Um, that said, do I think 50% is pretty high? Like, absolutely. I think, you know, I definitely think uh, this is going to help kind of lower, lower those fees and then also kind of blur the roles because you now can have a collector can sort of be their own gallery, right? They're going to have certain tastes and like, a collector could be a curator. So we're kind of like, um, I was talking to someone recently and they said it kind of seems like a flattening and emerging of a lot of the components. So you're seeing the lines blurred and before where there was a rigid distinction, now it's kind of a gray area and you can kind of fall in there. Um, and so I think, I think that's pretty exciting because it opens up, you know, Somebody could be a collector, but maybe they also like to tell stories about art and, you know, they can, you know, they could go sell it if they chose to. So I think we're seeing the roles change. I don't think it's going to go away. You know, like for me, I love reading about, you know, if a curator does a studio tour and I learn about an artist's process, then I go appreciate the work in a completely different way. And if I'd never heard that story, you know, I wouldn't know a lot of those things. And so um, I think it's just changing, but I don't think they're going to go away. And presumably, as you say, that that storytelling or giving context to a piece of art, a collection, an artist adds a premium. I guess the difference now is that you will be able to see that premium, you know, like the, the marginal 
premium that's been added or, or not. And presumably, if somebody is actually not adding a premium to the asset, then they won't be able to, you know, participate in uh, in the way that they might have previously. Um, so, both in terms of super rare, but then also maybe owning art generally, have you considered a DAO? And in terms of evolving from what you are now towards one and, and the kind of community governance that might come with that, do you think that DAOs will have a role to play in, in the ownership of art, kind of the fractional ownership of art? Yes. So, yeah, we, we talk pretty extensively about, you know, what a governance token could look like. Um, I think, you know, like you mentioned, and we, we talked about, you know, we're doing a lot of the curation for who has access to Super Rare right now. Uh, it's, you know, very challenging. It's, you know, it's certainly not fun to, to tell people no. Um, you get lots of, uh, well, fuck you emails. Or I guess maybe I should curse, but... Uh, you can, uh, you can it, swear away. All right. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So, you know, that's very challenging. And I think a huge opportunity, you know, it's amazing that the, you know, the kind of the community that's grown around Super Rare is pretty passionate about, you know, the, this decision-making process. And so, um, yeah, I think absolutely at some point we're going to have something that's more you know, kind of community owned and community governed. And so, uh, you know, I think one of the, Right, the, the dreams of crypto is that, you know, people who are participants in the network actually own the network, right? That's, you know, I think a big part of why we're all here. And I think there's a huge opportunity to do that. And so we just, um, we, our goal is to be pretty thoughtful about it, kind of, you know, we don't want to rush it. Uh, but I think it's, you know, it's an exciting, it's an exciting area to experiment in, right? It's, you know, it's something like an art collective, but it's also a social network and a marketplace. And then again, it's this kind of, blurring of the roles and i think uh, yeah there's something really interesting and special to be uh, built there are you aware of any cartels or DAOs that are focused on acquiring and owning nfts and art like there are for say gaming so there's definitely uh rumors about you know these these being built and um you know people people doing that which i think like you mentioned the fractionalization i think uh, it's great to have, you know, there's a lot of folks who are interested, but, you know, maybe don't have the time to do what they consider due diligence to, to go spend money on art. And so I think, um, yeah, I think it's going to be great for, for artists to have kind of more, more capital coming into the system, uh, you know, supporting the creation of more art, uh, supporting more people. Uh, so yeah, I think you know probably over the next year we're going to see a lot more of that just because, just from what I've heard hanging out in Discord channels and stuff, uh, <laughs> there seems to be a lot of interest in it. So if we try to then understand the market as it is, or or the asset, kind of from a financial perspective, as I said, I've seen kind of lots of new types of artists entering, whether that's um, AI generative art, a lot of people building stuff using Unity and other gaming engines, um, and then even some music or scores being added to, to pieces now. How do you see the, the asset or the, the media evolving in terms of what's being listed now on, on Super Rare? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's interesting because it can be more of an experience. Like you mentioned, you know, having, if you have a, a looping video with, 
sound or an audio component to the piece of art. You know, that's going to be totally different than if you didn't have the audio component. And I think we're kind of in early days experimenting, you know, what, you know, with what does this look like, but I think it's going to be more and more uh, experiential. And I think another thing that's pretty interesting is, you know, the experience could also be, you know, like depending on where you are and what you have, you might experience the art in a different way. So for example, on the website, you might just see a video clip of a piece of art, but then if, you know, say it's something that has a lighting component and an audio component and a video component. Like if you had the right equipment, you could, you know, sort of immerse yourself in a more detailed, uh, you know, in different fashion. And so I think that's an interesting thing. You know, if you, if you go to the Tate Modern and you look at a Rothko, that's going to be a pretty different experience than if you're just browsing Rothkos on Google images. And I think, you know, we're seeing more and more of this as, you know, we have, people building VR sculpture. And so on super rare, it looks one way, but then in kind of the immersive unity experience, you can appreciate it in a completely different fashion. And so uh, I think we're just going to see more and more detailed kind of experiential uh, media that, you know, people is considered art. Yeah. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later in terms of how NFTs could become more experiential, either in a virtual context or, or a physical context. But it's really interesting. Um, ha- have you already seen groups, collectives, or studios work together? So somebody that could do audio, somebody that could do an animation, as you say, maybe somebody that works in lighting in a film context. Have you seen collaborations between different artists with different skills to create a single piece yet? Yeah, absolutely. So early on, you know, artists we were talking to would, you know, might be more traditionally, it might be more traditional. So, you know, perhaps like pencil and paper or, you know, oil and canvas. And so they would partner with people to do who are kind of, you know, better at animation or, or, you know, like mixed media, multimedia. And so sort of since day one, we've kind of seen some of this collaboration and teamwork around this. And I think, yeah, we're, we're just continuing to see that. Um, you know, for example, with the the Atlantis uh, VR exhibition, you know, that was a collaborative effort to, you know, kind of put together the world, a bunch of different artists who put together their different sculptures. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we're just going to see more and more collaboration because it's kind of required to build these bigger experiences. So for context, the Atlantis thing was your second VR art show, right? Yeah, that's correct. Before we go into some of the detail around understanding NFTs as an asset and like a financial asset, could you first explain to me trash art? Because this is a meme that I've been trying to get my head around for the last week and I can't really understand its origins. And it seems to be there's now trash art meme has merged with some pill meme and it's like the memetics in the crypto art community are just off the wall. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I wish I had more time to spend on my meme creation. Uh, I'm often... (laughs) just trying to you know, build super rare features. But um, so, yeah, I think the origins of trash art, uh, we, you know, as I mentioned, we kind of view each relationship with it, that we have with an artist as a partnership. And, you know, one of those partnerships, I think uh, sort of like opinions started to diverge. And so we had an artist who was, you know, in there, they would say they were minting pieces of conceptual art, which were basically just 
things they had found on Google that were in the public domain and then tokenizing them, which you know, we were like, this is not the ethos of super rare. We're trying to, you know, tell people about digital art. It's very confusing if they're like, this is not uh, a great way. Like this isn't helpful for us as a community for you to be doing this. And so we uh, revoked this artist's ability to tokenize on super rare. And the last piece that he had created was uh, sort of like a trash can that he had run through a photo uh, like photo filter basically. And so that was the origin of trash art in that, you know, there's people love to yell about, you know, the sort of like fair use and the right that you know, people should be able to do whatever they want. And I think people should, there's plenty of places where you can do whatever you want. Uh, just, you know, for us trying to build this ecosystem around, um, digital art, it's not extremely helpful to have, you know, to be asking questions about like, well, what is fair use? And is this pushing the boundaries? And, you know, like, um, and so uh, that's kind of the, the origin story of trash art. So yeah, it's turned out to be a great platform. People are standing on it, yelling about, you know, rights and things. Um, so. And now people have kind of created, I mean, it's a whole meme, right? Trash art meme. There's people producing versions of his version um, which is, which is awesome. It was, it was slightly confusing to me looking from the outside, but now, now I, now I, now I know what's going on. Um, and I guess I need to quickly hurry and try and buy that original one of his, right? Cause that sounds like the, 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 the thing that starts memes, uh, presumably is, is going to have value at some point. Um, so in terms of the, the, the kind of NFTs as a financial asset, do you see correlation to the price of what's happening in on a platform like yours versus what's going on in the wider market. As I said, at the top end of the, um, the podcast, people I've spoken to have said that a lot of the very early crypto artists that were kind of very referential to crypto itself have almost become emerging as blue chip artists. And, you know, some have said, well, it's not because they're a great artist. It's just because they were the first or the most referential. Um, are you seeing that happen is kind of more capital or more of a premium being associated to the, the, the early, early movers, or do you think that there's other, other dimensions at play? I think there's a lot of dimensions, but I definitely think that there's an element of, well, you know, these people were here around, they were at least either part of or around the time of kind of the origin of, of just the movement around crypto art. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a higher premium, um, you know, a lot of those artists, I think, are amazing artists, but also uh, just, you know, we're, we're making art history. And so I think, you know, it, it makes absolute sense. Uh, you know, some of the early impressionists, are they the best impressionists? Yeah, people have different opinions there, but uh, they were the first ones, so that makes it exciting. Yeah, really interesting. And again, I've been trying to snap up uh, a few of these um, before I start talking about them on podcast or Twitter, by the way, so that's why I'm not that's why I'm not mentioning any names yet. Um, tried to use that information asymmetry to to my to my benefit. So if we kind of now go into the infrastructure, both kind of digital and physical infrastructure that will enable this stuff to mainstream. Um, obviously, the big the big question is around um, gas prices um, because of the nature of. Um, or the dominance of, of Ethereum related to NFTs. Um, how are you handling that? Obviously, there's things like Fuse from Dapper Labs now, which is looking to, to, to try to create a protocol specific to NFTs. Um, 
how are you navigating that dependency upon Ethereum? Are you considering the protocols or are you kind of philosophically wedded to, to Ethereum and waiting for Ethereum 2.0? Uh, yeah, I'd say not really you know, philosophically wedded to any particular protocol. So we've, you know, we've been looking at layer two uh, for Ethereum pretty heavily. So, you know, like the roll-up technology, uh, there's, you know, platforms like, uh, like Matic or Matic and some of these other kind of like layer two scaling solutions. Uh, you know, Near recently announced their Rainbow Bridge. We have like Polkadot kind of coming online with these, you know, sort of like application specific chains, which are, you know, kind of like side chains. Um, there's a, you know, there's a lot of options. I think none are, like really amazing. They they all come with you know technical challenges, and it's a pretty heavy you know engineering investment to get them to work. And then I think you also have UX challenges, you know, just based on the nature of these solutions. I think you know one of the great things about just using Ethereum is you're like, well, everyone's already familiar with the token. People have MetaMask. Like the moment you add a layer two, you're adding more complexity. I often think more complexity just means it's worse. Uh, you know, which, so there's, there's just a lot of trade-offs. And so that's kind of like, I guess, so maybe philosophically, I just think simple is better. And so having, not having to deal with something else uh, is nice. But at the same time, if the gas fees, you know, continue <laughs> increasing at this pace, no one will be able to do anything except for, you know, people farming sushi or you know, whatever <laughs> they're doing. Uh, so... Yeah, we're doing, we're pretty actively researching everything. Actually just opened up a scaling channel on our Discord today because I think that there's a lot of interest in, uh, so we'll be sharing kind of our findings. Um, yeah, it's it's a tough situation to be in because I think not, there's no, you know, silver bullet, no magic solution. Uh, any of them right now are pretty, you know, you're going to be building features that don't really add to the user experience or like, you know, kind of help with the ultimate goal of building a great art collecting platform. So, yeah. So at the moment you can only purchase by using MetaMask, which for those that don't know is a browser, which effectively lets you purchase NFTs with Ethereum or, or, or kind of move in and out of various um, crypto assets um, versus say Nifty Gateway, who, as far as I can understand, only allow fiat payments i think you might be able to do it through the gemini wallet because they were recently acquired by by gemini but is that a deliberate decision is it again just a way to try to reduce complexity whilst the community is still quite you know crypto for crypto's sake and at what point might you consider on and off ramps to allow for people to pay with with fiat yeah i think it's mostly just been kind of keeping it simple uh i think it would be great, especially as, you know, we're, where there's a lot more interest from kind of the, the more traditional art world or just folks who are not crypto natives uh, getting excited about the, you know, the space, the, you know, the movement that's happening. Uh, so I think credit card would be great. There's regulatory challenges if we wanted to, you know, actually, one of the nice things about using the smart contract is, you know, we're completely non-custodial. That helps keep things simple for us. Uh, so yeah, I think it, it's, you know, it's coming. It's just uh, something we haven't prioritized yet. So I think we're still, you know, building in a, some amount of infrastructure around it. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's interesting because, of course, when we're thinking about an NFT, the SEC would, could maybe, possibly, who knows, consider it as a 
Um, the same as any crypto and therefore custody is a regulated activity. You need an e-money license and everything else. And I guess because you're you, in the US, you, you kind of have that regulatory overhang, which perhaps people outside of the US don't have. Have you ever considered, well, firstly, are you registered in the US? Have you ever considered operating out of a, another jurisdiction to make that easier? Is for now, you're kind of just deferring to this, um, going through MetaMask and that kind of keeps you out of trouble. Yeah, so we're registered in the US. Um, haven't spent too much time heavily thinking about other jurisdictions. So yeah, it's mostly it's just been, well, it'll, it's simple if we're non-custodial, um, but uh, I think it would be nice, you know, like there's plenty of people who don't want to, you know, they'd love to swipe a credit card and have something happen behind the scenes. Uh, not terribly technically difficult to build, much more difficult from a regulatory perspective than anything else. Uh, so yeah, right. you know, we're, we'd love to have a good solution there. So to circle back to this uh, idea of the kind of physical infrastructure or spaces where you could experience this multimedia form of NFT, be it a physical gallery or compared to a virtual space. I spoke recently with Mokda, um, the Museum of Contemporary Digital Art, and I know that they're, they have a, a virtual space in Somnium, which is a um, VR blockchain environment, but they've also been exploring having a physical space to to, to kind of showcase the experiential nature of NFTs. Yeah, how much of this is on your roadmap now, given everything that's going on with, with COVID? Yeah, so we, yeah, we're, we're big believers in, you know, the physical, physical space. Uh, a lot of our first exhibitions, we, we had framed a bunch of iPads. And so, you know, we're at hanging out at DevCon, telling people about digital art. Um, and uh, so I think there's a big opportunity there, uh, but also, the kind of like the in-home digital experience is also, you know, kind of lacking at this moment. So we're working on just the UX around like, what is it, you know, how do people want to enjoy art in their home? But then also, I think there's, you know, there's super interesting stuff happening with these more immersive uh, digital art experiences all over. There's the, you know, the art, art, tech, art and tech house in New York. Um, I think there's a, a Japanese art collective, or, you know, maybe they're, global, but I think they're based in Japan uh, called Team Lab that does, you know, incredible work. And so I think we're just, you know, on one, for one thing, the, the technology is getting a lot cheaper, you know, it's getting cheaper and cheaper to do incredible projection mappings. And so I think, you know, there's interesting things happening with public art. And what's cool about that is you can do it on a scale, you just can't, you know, if you had a, a 200 by 200 foot uh, painting to be very challenging. You got to move it around, set it up versus if you have, you know, projection, projection mapping capabilities all over the world, you could stream the same piece of art, you know, you could have a global art show. Everybody's kind of experiencing something similar. Um, and so I think we're just getting started. Like the technology is getting a lot cheaper. Uh, it's getting better. And I think we're going to see more of that happening. So to kind of maybe end on the, the, uh, Big vision. How do you understand the role of NFTs in the context of the metaverse? Do you kind of subscribe to the metaverse as a as a direction, or, or do you kind of see it going in a, in a different way? Uh, well, so I think there's. I think digital art is going to be an enormous market. I think we're seeing a complete. You know, there's a revolution happening, uh, and that's really exciting. 
kind of just around digital art in general. So even metaverse aside, uh, we're seeing there's lots, you know, happening in crypto. There's lots happening outside of crypto and traditional art. So that's that's happening. And then on the other hand, I do think there's amazing stuff happening with the metaverse. I think NFTs are a foundational component of this. Uh, people are working on standards; they're getting better, and so. Um, I think art's going to be something that kind of bridges the metaverse and, you know, this, you know like the physical world. Uh, you know, maybe it'd be like metaverse light if you were just displaying a piece of art in real life. But um, yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're seeing the early, you know, like the early stages of this. My opinion, it's going to be like, you know, there's going to be millions of metaverses, you know, all connected. Uh, People are still figuring out how that works. You know, there's, I think there's a ton of standards work that needs to happen. It's, uh, you know, how simple is the ERC 20 standard compared with, you know, what we're going to need standards wise for a metaverse to function. Uh, so I think, you know, we probably have five years, you know, I don't know, maybe even of standards writing just that it's going to happen, but eventually, uh, we're going to end up in a place where it's stuff is actually interoperable and you can kind of travel between these uh, virtual worlds, which would be very exciting. Well, at this opportunity, I have to do a shameless plug because they'll never forgive me if I if I don't do it. But Crucible is a project in our portfolio that is trying to work on this trust layer, identity layer and, and portability of NFT. So there you go, Ryan can make sure I uh, got that in. Um, the final bit is we do something called uh, Twitter asks. So I kind of put out on, on Twitter a few things. Um, no tricky questions. You, you'll be glad to hear. Actually, um, the first one I'll ask is kind of linked to, to the final point around the metaverse. So at Prob um, said, do you think everyone should have a VR set? And what is the minimum entry level for virtual galleries? Uh, I do. I think everyone should have a VR set. Yeah, I think it's it's completely different. You know, if you are walking around VR with an Oculus Quest, I think you know, the Oculus Quest is, I mean, it's still a little bit expensive. I think the price point's around 500 bucks. Uh, so, you know, that might not be feasible for everybody. But um, if you can afford it, I highly recommend getting a Quest it's totally game changing not having all the wires connected. Um, so I think that's a good place to get started. You can do a lot of a lot of fun things with an Oculus Quest. Cool. Um, and then interestingly, we got a question from X Copy, which is one of those artists uh, who does. He's, does, he's one of my favorites. You're right, exactly. And uh, I've got I do have a couple of his his pieces, and uh, he's potentially one of those blue chip artists that we were alluding to a little bit earlier. Um, so his question was a little bit kind of more functional or technical, which was around timed auctions. So um, do you imagine it'll be some options in the future? He suggested that the Cody method seemed fairest. I don't know what that is, by the way, but he prefers short extensions for late bids. Ah, interesting. Um, so yep, we were, we just finished the spec. So, uh, auctions are in, they're in route. We're, we're building them out right now. So that's been super exciting. Uh, there are going to be two options. Uh, one is, you know, the Colby method and which, yeah, for those who don't know, uh, Colby is an OG in the space. Shout out to Colby. He's awesome. Um, but he kind of pioneered an auction method via Twitter. And so we're going to, that's, it's basically once a reserve price is met, it kicks off a 24 hour auction. And then 
there's kind of like a, a 15 minute extension towards the end if people are continued to bid it up. Uh, so that'll be an option. And then we're also going to have sort of just scheduled auctions with a time frame. So if you wanted to have a, an auction last a week, uh, you could do that as well. Awesome. And then final question, I don't even know how to pronounce this, Abysmums, I think, something like that. Um, I actually blocked him for, for asking this question, but I'll, I'll give him anyway. Um, he said, if you, could sing, if you could sing one song on American Idol, what would it be and why? Let's see. Well, it'd probably be uh, Frank Sinatra, New York, New York, uh, mostly because that's just my go-to karaoke song. And so probably one of the few I could actually sing all the words to. Nice. There you go. So he'll, he'll be happy and we can pretend he doesn't exist anymore. Awesome. Look, thanks for your, thanks for your time. It's really appreciated. Um, as I said, both at a kind of personal level, really interesting to see the, the growth of, of Super Rare and uh, equally at a, as an investor, I think it's going to be super interesting watching what you do, especially around governance tokens and DAOs and everything else. So um, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jamie. Really appreciate it. It's been a fun and lively conversation. If you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world raise $130 million in growth funding and can help you fast track product market fit and where relevant, the launch of your token economy.